That was the Hallelujah Chorus from Messiah by George Frederick Handel. I'm Nick Pignataro, and this is Brewing Classical, conversations about composers and conductors, and always over a cup of coffee. In this episode, I chat with Dr. Michael Accurso about Handel's most famous work, Messiah. Dr. Accurso is the music director at Holy Name of Jesus Cathedral in Raleigh, North Carolina, and the music director for the entire Diocese of Raleigh. We chat about some of the unique structures and elements of the work, and even some of Mozart's changes. So, grab your favorite mug, fill it with your favorite or closest brew, and join us, won't you? I start this conversation like I start a lot of good conversations, with a mug of coffee. Today, it's Swell Joe, the doobie. It's 100% Kenyan. Uh, It says, bold from the top to bottom, pure and tropical juice. It's a darker medium roast. Swell Joe is a roastery found in Delaware, in Lewis, Delaware. And I bought my bag at a fabulous, fabulous uh, bagel shop called Surf Bagel in Lewis. So, Mike, it's so good to have you here today. You know, we, you know, we've been friends since childhood. When did we meet first? Well, um, I think we met probably when we were about sixth or seventh grade. Mm, right. I'm trying to remember what were we were doing some church stuff together, right? Like we right. went to different schools. Yeah, we were we were uh, altar serving. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> <laughs> and and even that, like. I knew who you were, but that didn't make us friends. Like we, we didn't talk to each other. We just sort of stood there. <laughs> <laughs> and did what the priest told us to do. Exactly. Yeah. Uh. So when we think about why Handel wrote Messiah, um, he it, it, Messiah is often referred to as an oratorio. And oratorio, is, that li- is that like an opera? I was just about to say it's it's, it's an oratorio by definition is very similar to okay, an right. opera. It's got a sacred theme and and plot characters. Um, it's not um, it's not acted though. It's, it's a concert performance, whereas an opera would have staging and costumes. Mm-hmm, I see. So, so when we think about that, um, and then look at Messiah, Messiah doesn't really have some of those elements. It doesn't have a storyline per se. Mm-hmm. It, it follows the life of Jesus Christ from um you know looking at prophets that said that he was you know that that this that that somebody would be coming um sort of that advent theme john the baptist calling in the wilderness if if we're familiar with that sort of scripture right right so but the scriptures that that handle draws from are are long before jesus okay Um, you know, going back into the Old Testament with the prophet Isaiah and other prophets as well. And then it follows um, the life of Christ, but it doesn't go through his life, you know, as a, a play-by-play of this is what he was doing. Mm-hmm. 
this much in the same way that in the in the gospels and the bible do and so um we don't see any specific characters um we don't see his mother mary or the apostles playing roles and so um this is really a collection of of biblical texts and so it, even though it's always referred to as an oratorio, it, it's really more like a cantata. Interesting. And we know Bach has made cantatas quite famous, or we know a lot of cantatas because of Bach, right? Right. Where you have that chorus. Is there something to do with a chorus and soloist and quartet kind of alternation? Right. So, so as far as uh, your your forces and the types of um, the, the types of pieces that are that are involved. You have choruses, you have arias, you have recitatives. These are all from that Baroque tradition, um, and and these are the um, different types of of musical movements that you see in cantatas and oratorios and operas. Um, it, that's the unifying factor there. And we can and we can start with part one. Uh, the piece opens with something operatic, right? There's a there's a quasi overture. Right. So um, it starts with an overture and the overture itself actually sets up um, the entire work. And so um, I'm sorry if you're getting random chimes. That's okay. We love chimes. Are there chimes in the handles, Messiah? There are no chimes, in uh, at least not in the original. Okay, right. Um, um, so I was going to say that the, the overture sets us up for the entire work. And in this case, um, we have a, a device called the French overture. Mm. And, and that um, comes when we look at the, um, the seriousness, but also the, the rhythms that Handel decides to use. He uses these long dotted notes followed by very short, um, short sixteenths. Great. Let's, you know what, let's stop. Let's give that a listen. And then we can hear this, this, this sound that uh, Dr. Curso is describing. What was it about that? What what was it about that that beginning that was in the French style, the French overture style? So the French overture um, is a rhetorical device. Okay. So in, in the French courts, um, you would use that device, that rhythmic device. Um, da dum da dum da dum. Exactly. Okay. That, that was processional music. Ah. Um, so when, when the royalty would, would enter, you would have, you know, that, that device going on and, and therefore people who, who don't, who didn't understand, uh, music even, um, knew something important was happening, knew the, the king was coming in. Uh. And so, you know, when you translate that into the Christian tradition, this piece of music is referring to. Um, Messiah or the anointed one, the king, um, in the Christian tradition. And so it's setting up, um, you know, this, this life of, of Jesus. Which we often 
we those who study this often refer to Jesus or God as the king or the father, which makes a lot of sense then. Um, right. And that's, and that leads us right, you know, when we're listening to this, this welcoming or this an- announcement, it reads us right into one of those musical features you were talking about, which is that comfort you recitative. Yeah. If we're looking at the first part, right. I'm already seeing that with uh, comfort ye, it doesn't sound so much like a song as it does sound like a, I don't know, a song spoken, half recited, almost like rapping of sorts. Yeah, rapping. That's an interesting way to put it. I mean, if you know, if Handel was going to rap in the 1700s, and what are we talking about? 1750, 1730? Yeah, right, right in that middle of the 18th century. Okay. Um, 1740s. Yeah, so pretty, pretty much before Mozart was officially on the scene. Right. Okay. So, yeah. So it, it's it's interesting uh, to talk about this like rap. This this style of music is called a recitative. So it's it's like it's recited. And uh, I had a teacher in in school that actually said that baroque music was essentially like the last kind of music that was ever really composed, and everything else since then is basically just baroque music. Really? Kind of have to say, like you know, if you think about rap, that's a stand. It's it's spoken music over a, a prescribed baseline which is you know the baseline is just so important in baroque music and the baseline and chords so we're talking about recitative 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 recitativo for those of us of the italian persuasion dr curso also known as mike is my dearest friend uh, my oldest friend, uh, our names both end in vowels. We like to joke we're quasi-Italian people. But anyway, um, the recitativo, we're in the, this first part of Messiah, which sort of feels to me like almost the Christmas portion, all about the telling of Jesus becoming born or, or, or almost born or suddenly born. And there's this really, <laughs> I mean, I guess it was a quasi-surprise, right? That's the story. Although right. Mary had about probably nine months to figure it out and paint the crib and build the crib and Joseph was there woodworking, right? Right, yeah. Yeah, as all good fathers do. <laughs> On December but, uh, 23rd, still putting on those final touches. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, right. And from what I understand, they were traveling too, so it really was right, a mess. Yeah. Um, but <laughs> they're, 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 there were shepherds abiding in the field and then the angel coming and then there was an angel and then the chorus jumps in. Is this kind of what you're talking about with the recitative progressing the story and then having the chorus jump in, not really characters? Is this a good moment? Well, you know, I'm going to contradict myself here. So the, the characters are not named. Um, okay. So our, our soprano um, is singing this recitative. Um, like a spoken rap. Right. Yeah. Or the song and, rap, and at this particular moment, she's representing the angel. Mm-hmm. Um, and this angel in the Bible is not named. Okay. An angel. An angel. Um, Someone decent with wings. Right. Yeah. And then, um, and then the choir comes in when she says, and suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts. And so now when the choir comes in and they were singing glory to God in the highest. So when the choir comes in with glory to God in the highest, they're representing that multitude of heavenly hosts. So we, we're, we're painting that text. 
so the the voices of the, that multitude, meaning many angels, or right, right. or so, or, oh. or, the, or the all of heaven is all of a sudden singing, represented by the choir here. Right. Glory to God. I'm trying to remember here which movement this is. What number is it? Do you have that? 17, handy? it is. Movement 17. What are we? Yeah. We're probably about 45 minutes into the work right now. Right. And this is the first time the brass play. As a trumpet player, That's I remember scary, being. Right? I, I remember Take being. Up. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'll tell you this. Uh, the students know that I grew up as a trumpet player, and my God. Well, there's, there's so many emotions. First of all, you know, you're there, like you said, 45 minutes, and it's the first time that the brass play, and it's really high and hard music. And it's so exposed. Like a trumpet comes in after 45 minutes, and nobody misses you, right? By that time, you've arrived to the gig like a half hour early. You're all warmed up, ready to go, and then you just sit there. For forty-five, yeah, and then you, and then of course it always starts late because American concerts always start late, right? Right. And, and so you think to yourself, like, did I leave the oven on? I wonder if I should have time to get the groceries. And then all of a sudden, it's time to do all this, right? So I mean, but but do brass players just kind of understand that that's the way orchestral playing goes in, in this piece? Right, because then when's the next time you play the Hallelujah? Oh yeah. Hour and a half later. <laughs> yeah, but then they give us that special moment, though, of uh, and the, the trumpet shall sound. Right. So is there a reason for this? Why does Handel so sparingly use God's instrument, or at least Gabriel's, the trumpet? Well, I think he's, he's trying to highlight something here theologically. So he only uses the trumpet four times in the entire work, this entire mm. three-hour work. So we have the glory to God, hallelujah, the trumpet shall sound, and um, the last movement. Um, worthy is the lamb. Worthy is the lamb. Mm -hmm. So we have four moments here, and they represent four really important moments in 
um, Christian theology, Christian religious tradition. So glory to God in the highest is associated with the birth of Jesus Christ. And then the next time you play is hallelujah, is the resurrection. And then uh, the trumpet shall sound on the last day. So Christians believe that Christ is going to come back again a second time. And that is on the last day when the tr trumpet will sound. And then um, the final, worthy is the lamb, because he's, you know, reigning as king over heaven eternally. So Handel uses the trumpet to highlight these four really important um, tenets of Christian faith. Tradition. Yeah, and I think it goes without saying that, um, it, you know, it, it also was a great deal of effort to play the trumpet in the Baroque period. The trumpets then were not valved in the same right. way that our trumpets are now. So they had a lot less musical well reliability number one intonation issues they had a lot of but also it was just they didn't have a whole chromatic range i mean they couldn't play all those notes so if handel took the time to to write in trumpet for these moments i think we should give these few moments a listen and we come back now so many almost it seems like an hour later with the resurrection uh easter <laughs> There's a sense of finality and longing for the end in the Christian tradition. Yeah, so I get we come to the trumpet shall sound. And I guess you can't end a work like this without the trumpet, right? Exactly. So here we are, a little bit, a snippet of Worthy is the Lamb and the Great Amen. So, Mike, I know you have uh, an extensive, you, well, you spent an extensive amount of your education sort of learning about this work. I think you, you performed it several times, yeah? Well, I, I performed it in a variety of ways. I've conducted it. I've sung in the choir. Mm -hmm. 
but um, I actually wrote my dissertation for my doctorate on Mozart's arrangement of Handel's Messiah. Um, and so, so about 40 years later, um, Mozart found himself uh, working for a, a very famous patron uh, of music in the late 18th century, Gottfried von Sweeten. And von Sweeten had um, several Baroque works in his library, his personal music library. Um, music by Bach, by Handel, CPE Bach. Um, and what uh, one of the things he assigned Mozart to do was to update um, this music. And so he, first of all, he performed it in German. Um, what was it originally written in? It was originally written in English. Oh, okay. Um, although um, Handel himself was German. Hmm. So um, it's possible he, he may have worked with it in German. Um, but he, he updated the orchestra. And the reason I just wanted to bring this up for a quick moment is we've been talking about brass. Um, in, in the original, we, when we say brass, we're really only referring to two trumpets and uh, timpani, even though timpani is a percussion instrument in the Baroque context, it always played with the brass. Right. Um, and so um, when, when Mozart got his hands on it, he added trombones and horns, and he used them from the very first movement. And so in a way, he, um, he kind of broke that, uh, that device, that rhetorical device of Handel using the trumpets only to highlight the really important moments. Um, and you were talking about the virtuosity of the, of the trumpet parts, how difficult they are to play. And, um, you know, by the time Mozart was on the scene, the uh, trumpeters had lost some of that ability. And so he had to very um, cautiously simplify the trumpet parts. And um, that famous aria that you were talking about, the trumpet shall sound, Mozart actually rewrote it for, um, for horn. Interesting. Does that change? I mean, we're talking theoretically and sort of philosophically here, but does that change the te the context or the meaning of the work, in your opinion? Well, I mean, yes and no. So, um, you know, to go to sort of dive into history here, um, you know, one of the uh, one of the the reasons for for Martin Luther you know, kind of starting uh, the Protestant movement tradition, you know, one, one of his many uh, points was that people should be able to, to access the, the Bible in their own language, because up to that point, we were looking at it pretty much in, in Latin. Um, and the old, the, the Hebrew Bible could be in Hebrew. Sure. Um, so when Martin Luther wrote a translation of the Bible, he took that phrase that we were talking about, the trumpet shall sound, and he used the word depausauna, which means mm. actually the trombone shall sound. <laughs> um, like the trombone of salvation. Right. Uh, I could picture our trombonists right now uh, slobbering all over the floor thinking about that, but yes. <laughs> and so, you know, for Mozart, so Mozart was looking at it in German, and um, so, you know, he may have wanted to illustrate it with lower brass. Mm. He could have done it for trombone, he, but he, he did it with horn anyway. Um, 
Well, and we know Mozart's horn concerti are, are not only virtuosi, but really popular horn players. A lot of our horn players are familiar with many of the uh, Mozart horn concerti. And, and, and I think though, in so many ways, like in so many of his works, Mozart's, he uses the horn to signify sort of nature and natural sounds, but also hunting. The, the corno di caccia, uh, corno, uh, corno right? The, the hunting horn or the chasing horn, the horn right. of the chase, right? Is, is like so famous in, in I think, Handel, mm, sure, but like in the classical, the true classical, we're talking basically right. yeah, Mozart through the end of Beethoven, beginning, maybe beginning of Mendelssohn, maybe. Um, and I just wonder if there's some dire it difference by changing it to a horn. I haven't heard that. I haven't heard a recording like that. I'll, I'll be sure to look it for that. Um, it, you know, does he add as well wood, woodwinds parts? Yeah. He's, so, he's a beefs up the orchestra. Right. So he uses a, a traditional classical orchestra. So winds and pairs, two flutes, two clarinets, two oboes, two bassoons. Um, Oboes and bassoons could have been in the original. They would have just doubled the uh, the violins and the cellos, mm -hmm. but um, but now they have independent parts in the in the Mozart arrangement. of conductors uh, to interpret what composers write. And, you know, the composers are often uh, dead or old. Um, we're lucky sometimes to be able to speak with living composers, but, you know, in the case of both Handel and Mozart, are, they're both pretty dead uh, or very dead. If you can be one of those things. Decomposing. They <laughs> Dad joke. <laughs> they are decomposers, yes. Oh goodness. Um, <laughs> they're decomposers. Absolutely. And so the only context besides their personal writings or perhaps tradition that's been passed down is if we don't have any of that stuff, the only thing we can do is kind of read between the lines, so to speak, and try to assess why, why the composer write a certain articulation, articulation meaning the style of tonguing or perhaps the bowing mechanism or the way the bow is used or the way that words are, are or said or spoken articulated. Is that where double dotting comes in? What is this double dotting? I've heard about this about Baroque music. Right, so, um, you know, one of the things that, that's pretty foreign to us as 21st century people is how expensive paper and ink were mm. 300 years ago, 400 years ago. Right, I suppose you couldn't just replicate thousands of pieces of paper on a, on a copy machine. Right. So there, there was, yeah, there was also the, the man hours involved mm -hmm. in writing a piece of music. And so um, composers would not often write all of that information down um, as far as how they wanted you to, to interpret a piece of music. Um, also, when you're looking at a piece like this, Handel probably didn't write all the words in like we're used to seeing on a, on a score. Oh. Um, he probably only wrote in a few and, and, the rest of them were either they either were clear or you had to sort of figure it out. So there's some discrepancies between performances that I would assume. Yeah, um, definitely. But to, to talk about your um, 
your question about double dotting actually goes back to something we were just talking about before. So, um, you know, we were talking about the French overture and that style of bum, but um, but um, mm -hmm. so to perform it like that, we're actually singing a double dotted eighth note followed by what is that a 30 second sure or some like very you, small like you, note you don't even notate it no how to notate yeah right it's, it's so short. short note yeah right um but it was expensive to write in the, that extra dot and that extra flag you know all those times and so you just had to know this piece is in the style of a french overture i'm gonna over dot it Huh. Which is the more correct way to say that instead of double dot, over dot. Over dot, because it's not exactly a double. I have a section called subido, which a lot of people, a lot of musicians learn as young people that subido means suddenly, or you'll see it before a dynamic marking, like suddenly soft. But a, a better translation from Italian to English is sort of right now or in the moment. So I have seven quick questions, subido, if you're game. Okay. All right. So question number one from subido. Who is one composer that you wish you knew more about? I wish... I knew more about Rachmaninoff. Yeah, Rachmaninoff, such beautiful, beautiful piano works and, and symphony works. I know his, he, he sort of gets looked over when we're, when we're in music school because he comes right in the middle of all these other composers as well. All right, so what's one recording that everybody should go and hear? So I listen to most of my music on YouTube. And really? So um, yeah, so I, I don't, you know, I, I have a whole box of, of CDs and I don't have a CD player anymore, not even <laughs> in my car. So, um, you know, we have to think about new ways of listening to music. And um, I love listening to music on YouTube because not only can you hear it, but you can oftentimes see it. Um, you can see the best performers in the world. I love listening to music by the 16. They're one of my favorite ensembles from yeah. England. Um, and, um, you know, I, I would say any of Harry Christopher's recordings are, are worth seeing. Um, one of my favorite, um, performances to watch is, uh, John Elliott Gardner, um, performing Handel's Dixie Dominus. Ah, that's great. It's kind of a pure evil kind of piece. Like pure evil. I love a little bit of pure <laughs> evil, especially in the morning. Yeah. My next quick question is, who or what started you in music? Well, um, short answer is a combination of my dad, and uh, who is himself a professional musician and um, music professor, retired. Ah. Um, and then uh, somebody that, that Nick will remember from our childhood, Miss Angela. Miss Angela, I remember her well. She was the uh, music director at our church. Uh, it's so funny how she kind of drew us in. And that's, I guess we owe her our friendship as well. Yeah, that's true. So what's your guilty pleasure music? Music you like, but you don't really like to admit it. Yeah, that would probably be Latin pop music. <laughs> like, 
Like I, I love listening to Jay, Jennifer Lopez sing like out loud or something. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So what's your most unpopular? Despacito. Despacito oh, is a good one. Um, actually, one of my favorite things is that we have, I teach sixth graders to play the guitar. And one of my favorite songs I teach them is Despacito, just because I can play it during class. Um, your unpopular opinion, your most unpopular opinion. What's some music that most people like that you just don't? Uh, jazz. Really? Son of, <laughs> son of a jazz musician. Oh, that's very yep. fair. I don't like jazz. It's got too many wrong notes. <laughs> too many wrong. <laughs> just play the right notes. <laughs> Making it up. So what's the strangest thing anyone has ever asked you to play or sing? One time when we were in a about i don't know eighth or ninth grade we played for a fundraiser you were on the trumpet i was on the piano and our oh my goodness i'm remembering singing, this now. and we were asked to sing <laughs> the pirates who don't do anything from VeggieTales. <laughs> from VeggieTales. and it's like uh i don't know it, it's a 12 16 measure little ditty and and we had to make it into three or four minutes <laughs> so we just Sang it over and over because <laughs> we didn't know anything at the time. <laughs> we didn't know anything about improv. <laughs> <laughs> we just sang it over and over. Uh, and uh, to, for what I remember, we were a big hit. Yeah, we uh, were asked to come back. Yeah. Well, <laughs> final question of Subido here. Um, in a quick answer, should I counsel students to make a career in music? Um. Yes. <laughs> uh, that hesitation uh, says everything. Right. With hesitation. Um, no, I think it could be very rewarding to have a career in music, but uh, young music students need to be realistic about it and um, really think about, you know, how they want to um, consider a career in music because... You certainly don't want to be a starving artist. Right. Um, have know, a plan, so to speak. Right. There are certain paths in music that have job security, and there's no reason why you can't be a great performer on the side. And of course, some performers make it. Right. So you just got to have a plan. Well, Mike, it has been so good to have you on the podcast today, and I'm so glad we got to chat. Yeah, me too. This was a lot of fun. Yeah, we'll have to have you back and uh, maybe we'll dig more into that Mozart version. All right. All right. Good to talk to you. Bye-bye. Bye. Michael Accurso is the director of music for the Roman Catholic Diocese of Raleigh and Holy Name of Jesus Cathedral in Raleigh, North Carolina. Additionally, he serves as the artistic and executive director of the North Carolina Bach Festival. As a conductor, he's performed several masterworks, including works by Haydn, Faure, Victoria, of course Handel and Mozart, Vivaldi, Durante, as well as a collection of lesser performed works. He's conducted performances throughout the United States, as well as Canada, Ecuador, and Rome. Within the past few years, Accurso has engaged in composition projects. In 2016, he was commissioned by Bishop Michael F. Burbage 
to compose a hymn for the dedication of Holy Name of Jesus Cathedral. The hymn is based on Psalm 145 and is titled, I Will Praise Your Name Forever. It has been translated into seven languages. He completed a Doctor of Musical Arts degree in choral conducting from Notre Dame in Indiana. There, he studied with renowned uh, conductors and musicologists and holds a sacred music degree, a master's, from Notre Dame. Before Notre Dame, he earned a Bachelor of Music degree in sacred music with a concentration in vocal performance from Moravian College in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. Join me next time as we fast forward in time to a truly bombastic and exciting work, Pini di Roma, or The Pines of Rome, by Italian composer Ottorino Respighi. That's The Pines of Rome, next time on Brewing Classical. Brewing Classical grew out of COVID-19 stay-at-home restrictions when all of us needed just a bit of music to get through the day. My hope is that you took your mind off your everyday life during this episode and are a little bit refreshed and more ready to face the next day. The professional recording in this episode is from Decca Music. Sir Neville Mariner conducted the Academy of St. Martin in the Fields Orchestra and Chorus. Special thanks to the Strathaven students who challenged me to make this podcast and willed it into existence. Theme music for this episode was written and produced by Cecilia Olszewski, Jessica Orr, and Matteo Machado. I thank Miss Kate Plows for her tireless support and reminder that the world always needs more storytelling. Thank you, dear listener, for spending a little time with us. Be sure to rinse out your mug and let it dry for the next episode of Brewing Classical. Goodbye. <laughs>